We're here to talk about forming and preparing a team for long-term healthcare missions. But there's more to this that I didn't get on the fact sheet because it's, they don't give you enough space. But really, this is the highlight of what I want to say, that these teams will launch movements. When uh, John McVeigh asked me to speak two years ago, I turned him down because I said, I'm totally about movements. And I'm afraid that too often people with medical uh, skills get trapped. You're so needed around the world that it's very easy to get trapped in taking care of all the immediate needs and you can't get on to movements. And he said, Nathan, that's exactly why I want you to come and then brought me back again this time. Because my passion is for you to use the skills you have as a... Well, let's try. Is it? Okay. To use the skills you have... Uh, gleaned in medical training to provide a platform so that people will hear and launch movements. So let me ask you some questions. <clears throat> Is it your desire to vaccinate multiple thousands of Berber children against preventable childhood diseases or to launch movements of churches or missional communities among the Berber who will reach all the Berber for Christ and who will then vaccinate all their children too. There can be both. Uh, is it your goal to treat 5,000 TB patients among the Bedo of the Middle East or to establish reproducing Jesus communities in the desert, churches, that actually bring the kingdom's blessing to all Bedouins and who themselves become the hands of Jesus serving the TB patients among them. Uh, is your ambition to establish and or staff emergency clinics for the never-ending flow of refugees, now it's five million Syrians, or is it your ambition to launch out-of-control movements of simple churches that sweep through a people group and serve their sick as part of being the church? Now, I... I'm guessing that you'd all like to do the latter. That's why you're here. But unfortunately, because the needs are so great, there are many, many hospitals like this one who will probably have more jewels in their crowns than I can carry, but have never been able to launch a church. Millions and millions of dollars. People have left great careers have abandoned all the Hollywood of America and have gone to a place like this for decades and to my knowledge have yet to plant a church. I know because my own daughter served as a nurse there and longed to see the kingdom of God expanded in the ecclesia that would spread throughout the whole community, but it still had not happened. This particular hospital has such a sweet aroma in the Middle East that quite apart from the lack of movement, it has still left a tremendous goodwill amongst the people. But their goal, since its inception many decades ago, was to launch churches that would plant churches that would spread throughout the whole Middle East. The last, it's been a couple of years since I've heard definitively, but just a couple of years ago, they had yet to plant a church. 
maybe a number of people have made some decision for Christ, but nothing that could become the book of Acts that would sweep through a people group until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers that people group like the waters cover the sea. It's not for lack of trying. This is a quarter million dollar dental uh, truck that was equipped at the time with the latest equipment. Uh, professionals that have invested 20 years in school are, are manning this, and yet they cannot get past the tremendous physical needs that cry out to them all the time to see the church launched. Versus, this is a young church planter in Sierra Leone. About a number of years ago, his shepherd, Shadanke Johnson, came to a, a doctor from Michigan and said, I'd like you to come and train my top church planters to be dentists in two weeks. And the dentist said exactly what you're laughing about. It took me seven years. How can I do it? And he said, well, I want you to teach the rudiments of dentistry. Enough that they can give Novocaine, that they can do simple fillings and extractions. And then he got them this, uh, I think Nate Saint might still, or Steve Saint might still have a, one of these chairs in his uh, outfit across the way. But it's a solar-powered chair that you can throw over your back and uh, actually be the fourth person on the motorbike taxi and drive out anywhere where you and I of our complexion would never, ever be welcome, right up into Boko Haram territory. And they can set up that little dental chair and while the drilling's going on, he can tell Jesus stories, captive audience, yeah, I like your story, and then remind him, if you want more, come back afterwards and I'll tell you more. And It's all a way of salting the people to find out who's the person of peace. And then, if they're still interested, after the Novocaine's worn off, and they say, bring your family tomorrow morning and I'll teach you how to study the holy books for yourselves. And these six Dentists, with each two weeks of training, planted 30 churches in one year. Now, my question is, which would you rather do? Would you like to stay in the office and fill teeth all day long? Or would you like to fill teeth and then also train people like this who could see the kingdom fleshed out through a whole people group? These are some of the churches. Um, the last count I had in 2002, uh, 2012, was 145,000 Muslims had come to faith in Christ. These were all Muslims uh, a year before I took this, but now they're singing praises to Messiah Jesus. The previous one that I skipped by mistake, um, whoops, let's try again here. This is actually, uh, the, the whole village um, has been radically changed by Jesus. That's Jerry Trousdale, by the way. He's the author of the book Miraculous Movements. This is the chief. And the chief is not yet a believer, but the chief has been so impressed with this young gal from, Libya, from Liberia that he has given her free reign to spread the gospel amongst his 98 villages. And she's planted six churches there already of Muslims who now sing and praise Jesus rather than chant to the Quran. That's not all they've done. 
this particular ministry is probably one of the most successful I visited anywhere in the world. They have planted 136 churches amongst the Fulani, 194 amongst the Kisi. Uh, probably the most exciting to me was when I met with these Susa believers. The Susa had been very, very difficult Muslim people group to penetrate. Uh, workers amongst them had been there for years and years and had seen just a handful coming to the kingdom. And then uh, they got trained in how to do disciple-making movements. And within three years, they planted 193 churches. The average size is about 31. So we're not talking about mega churches like this. But we are talking about the yeast having penetrated the society and it's infecting. The, the kingdom is merging throughout the whole people group. This Sierra Leone now has a Christian for a president. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally transforma transformation taking place. I, I purposely fudged out these faces because these brothers are saintly. They, I, the last thing I want to do is bring any shame to them. But they have labored hard in an area using the same methodology that my generation took to Africa years ago when my parents took me there. And they have seen very, very little fruit amongst Muslims. We went way up northwest of Nigeria into Boko Haram territory and finally found a church. This was the church and we found out they were all animistic background. They weren't even Muslim background. And it's not for lack of trying. This dear brother wept as he prayed for his people. The entire village was animistic and then in a matter of years they all went Muslim out of fear. And now he's struggling to introduce the gospel. But in the same region you have this guy. His name's Sylvester. Any of you heard Sylvester speak? He has come here to the States a couple times. Yeah. Amazing story. Um, his, his story is worth a whole session on it. But he and his comrades going from Sierra Leone into northwest Nigeria have seen 180 churches amongst the Fulani, 210 amongst the Hausa, these very arrogant, militant people in the same period of time. This is a, one of those stories that is worth repeating. I feel like I've shared it many places. But... I want you to hear what happens when good believers, solid evangelical servants of God, learn how to be a little bit more strategic. This is their story. One night, I so in the train there, I am out of this, uh, and I'm going to send my servant who is going to fulfill my, to do my work. So you will meet him and you will care about me. Go to the same place and wait for him there. If you are not obeying this, you will, you will be separated from me. So, I don't know Pastor Sarakai, and I don't know, he doesn't know me as well. We don't, they don't know each other. So, early in the morning, I went to the place where I've been told at 6 o'clock in the morning. 
generations of churches. One planting another, that one plants another, that one plants another. Now we're going to talk to the coordinator. Thousand former Muslims have come to treasure Jesus in less than six years. 
Tarakana and his friend planted, was it, I think it's about 12 churches in 12 years, which is exceptionally amazing at that. And then they got DMM training and planted, was it 70 churches in nine months? They don't evangelize very easily. God does amazing things. But they do evangelize. They just do it in a very different way than we've done. Yep. This is not supposed to come on again. These are actually uh, sheikhs. They're like Bible school graduates. They've been to the madrasa. They would be leaders in the mosque. The ones who can teach. And they're all going down to the water to be baptized. And um, the last I talked to those in, in this movement, they said, we're now up to thir- 300 of these sheikhs. And they would like to wait until there's a thousand and then go public, whatever that means. Yeah. But make a statement to the whole Muslim community. Here's a thousand of us sheikhs. We've all decided to follow Jesus. So what accounts for the difference? What accounts for the difference of those who labor for years and years and pour millions of dollars and can only show healed bodies versus those who can see cultures change because so many have come into the kingdom. There are so many different variables. There's no right answer. You can't say this is the way it's done. But I do believe that strategy plays a part in this. We cannot ignore that God gave us minds to try and be creative and to solve problems. That's part of the image of God in us. So let me use this as an example. Just one strategy. If, for instance, you were serving amongst this people and they began to love Jesus and wanted to worship Him and they wanted to sing and you had an old guitar that you could donate to them an instrument that they recognize it's not a foreign instrument to them, so there's not that problem, but they don't have one and so you have an old one. Will you give it to them to use for worship? Now, I just happen to know in most places where I ask this, if we had time to discuss it, probably three quarters of you would say, of course. Because we are thinking in terms of bringing over what we have experienced in our churches. You can't have a church without a guitar. There's no Holy Spirit without a redeemed guitar. So we're automatically going to introduce that. But if you look more carefully at this picture of all these Muslims being baptized, you're going to see that they've got clothes all around here. And the reason for that is that these people are so poor, they only have the clothes that they wear. So in order to spare them from the humility of spending the whole celebration in wet clothes, they give them these sheets that they change into and then they change back into their clothes. Now, if I had been the privileged one to plant a church here and I had given this group my old guitar and then eight months later they planted another church, what do you think this church would want? And when these two planted two more, what do you think these would want? And what do you think the chances are that people who cannot afford a second shirt could ever afford $10 for a guitar? 
and you have effectively stopped a movement. It's not rocket science. It's just being like Jesus. If you can stop for a moment and think how much Jesus had to lay aside in order to come and speak to yahoos like those twelve disciples in such a way that they got it. He was constantly doing things that they could do, including feeding the 5,000 and raising the dead. He was saying to them, I want you to do what I'm doing. And I'm going to give you all the power and I'm not going to do it in a way that you can't replicate. Everything I do, I've dummied myself so far so that I can become one of you so that you can do it exactly like I'm doing. Our problem is that we don't just bring guitars over. We bring whole theological systems over. We bring cemeteries, seminaries over. We bring the idea that you have to have a three-point homily that took 20 hours to prepare before you can preach. And everything about our strategy is not like this incredibly humble Jesus who lowered himself, emptied himself, so he could really become like one of us so that we could learn from him and do what he did. And that's part of the strategy we have to do. So how do we learn this? It's not easy for us to leave churches like this that we love and respect and simply go overseas and start I'm a, okay, here we go and start doing something that's radically different than we've experienced. I think we probably need to start with a champion. And there is possibly some of you in this room. This champion, probably the team leader, has got to live and breathe movement and medicine. Now, the reason I decided to put medicine in smaller letters was on purpose. Because your struggle as medically trained people will be that the physical needs are so immediate and they stare at you time and time again till you can't even sleep that unless you are eating and breathing movement, you'll spend all of your time, as so many have, on just medicine. And it's very difficult to break away from that when you've got all these sick around you that need you. So the team leader has to imbibe this into his D or her DNA. They have to live and breathe movement. And then they have to find a team that if they don't already imbibe that DNA, they've got to learn to embrace it from the team leader. Somebody has to constantly say to this team, we will go as Jesus did and love the holistic needs of the community. But we will make sure that the gospel of the kingdom is presented in such a way that it can plant reproducing ecclesia, communities of the gospel that can permeate through the culture. A champion helps the team to grow. Now, this is going to sound like a Sunday school answer, and I do not mean it that way. I've done it wrong, and I've come to realize we've got to start here. We've got to start with a passion for Jesus. And the reason I stress this is in all the years that we've been training and sending workers, what we've come to find out is that the average American likes Jesus, but is not nuts about Jesus. 
The average Christian thinks Jesus is pretty cool, good enough to trust for the forgiveness of their sins, but we have not developed the kind of love for God that Jesus pled with us to make our first and number one concern. Love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, even though you're dealing with saints who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they haven't yet developed such a passion for Him that they can do, as Debbie Dortzbach challenged us last night, willingly suffer for Him. To stay the distance. One of the biggest problems we're having is that people will go to the field for four or five years and just when things are breaking out, they come home. And oftentimes the harvest doesn't come until the 15th or 20th year. Well, only a passion for Jesus is going to keep us there. Debbie and Carl went back to Kenya, I think it was, for 20 more years. That We've got to have that kind of passion for Jesus if we're going to stay and see harvest. There's so many different ways. I've just got 30 minutes, so I'm going to give you a few ideas of how to do this. One of the things that I'm struggling with is how little the Gospels have permeated the evangelical church in the West. We live in the Pauline and Petrine epistles, and this great Savior has not got in our blood. And yet, it's our great Savior that is so intoxicating to the Muslim. That's what they want to hear. And so, we've got to start eating and breathing Him. So, I ask my interns to do an obedience-based Bible study in the Gospels at least four days a week. And they do the same passages so they can talk about Jesus, so that He becomes part of our everyday conversation. In the evangelical American church, Jesus comes up on Sunday mornings between a certain time and a certain time, and then we can go all week with Christians and hardly talk about Him. And what you don't talk about, you don't love. So, if we're going to be naturally salty in a Muslim community, we've got to be oozing Jesus. We've got to start gossiping about Him. You don't plan gossip. It just comes out. And if a passionate love for Jesus, and if we're not living in His presence and feasting on Him all the time, it's not going to come out of us naturally. It'll come out of us out of duty. And Muslims hate duty as much as we hate salesmen. So it's got to be delight. And I think that one way is to live back in the life of Jesus together in a community. Another is to read books together that, that inflame the heart with passion for Jesus. And I don't want to tell you what they are. They're going to be different for you. But together, go to the feet of those who've already fallen deeply in love with Jesus and read them together so that your own heart is impassioned for Him. And then start learning Jesus stories and telling them. Okay, we've got some nice plans. Four laws, five steps, etc. But Jesus didn't do it that way. The master teacher told parables, told stories. It's a good thing that we would learn from him. And so you right now can spend time learning. I have an intern right now that's starting to learn the stories in French because she wants to head to probably Algeria, where she'll have to start in French and then also learn Arabic. So why not? Let her learn them in the the tongue that she's going to start working. But she wants to get these stories down so she can always tell them. Most of us will do it in English. That's fine for now. But then don't just learn them. 
Tell them. Be in a missional community where you regularly talk with each other about, did you tell a story this week? Every time my interns come together, we always talk about how did your salty statements go and how did you tell stories of Jesus? The more he becomes our conversation with Muslims, the more they're going to be attracted by the aroma of Christ. And then, pray for passion. It's a gift from God. Uh, Paul prayed that God would open the inner being of our hearts so that we would know the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God for us. We could do the same. Make that a real passion with your team. As your, as your champion calls a team together, make this a real passionate cry. Lord, give us an intoxicating love for Jesus. But that's not enough. You can love Jesus and still do things that don't lead towards movements. And so we've got to learn some strategy. Champions will help their teams discover those strategies by putting them with Muslims. We estimate that you should have at least 100 hours of face-to-face time with Muslims before you go to the field. That's a minimum. So while this champion is calling together this medical team, make sure that you are helping each other to regularly interface with Muslims in your community so that you're learning how to present him in a Muslim-friendly way. And especially to talk about the gospel of the kingdom. Now, we could spend hours on this, but historically, the church of Jesus Christ has moved away from the gospel of the kingdom and we have embraced the gospel of how to deal with sin. We've substituted one interpretation of the atonement for the whole gospel of the kingdom. And this is so much a part of our DNA that I'm not even sure it does any good for me to tell you this right now, except for me to be one more voice to say, what did Jesus talk about all the time? How many times did he talk about Christianity in the, new, in the gospels? He never did. How many times did he talk about the church? A few times, exactly, twice. But the kingdom is over a hundred times. This was his theme. He was absolutely sold out to talk because the kingdom is God's theme. It starts way back in the book of Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve to rule, to be his vicegerents, what Muslims refer to as khalifs to be his ambassadors of his kingdom and bring all that kingdom justice and goodness to bear on earth. We're really good at following the crimson thread to talk about all the sacrifices that bring us to Christ. And praise God, there's a gospel to tell about a sacrifice because without the cross, there is no good news. But there's also the messianic theme, the kingdom theme that runs throughout the whole scriptures This Jesus that comes to us is primarily Messiah, not Savior. Does that trouble any of you? Let me say it again. I'll put it this way. When Peter finishes his sermon, his great sermon in Acts 2, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and... See, most of us would say it's Savior. Go and check it out. 35. It's Christ, Messiah. The summary of the Gospel is that this Jesus is the great King Messiah that all of 
that Jewish history has been waiting for. And part of that Messiah's role is to be Savior. But this Messiah comes as God come in the flesh to bring all the goodness of God's kingdom to reign on this earth. And as part of His reigning, He shows us the upside-down kingdom of God where the leader is the servant, where He dies for those He loves. And He washes the feet of those He comes to serve. That's a radically different kind of kingdom. But that's the message that we've got to bring to a Muslim world that thinks of Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Boko Haram as true religion. We're coming with a totally different message. This is a kingdom where the most powerful become the most powerful servants. Where we've got an absolute totalitarian king who reigns in love and when we surrender to him, we find absolute freedom. We've got to come back to this full gospel of the kingdom that centers on the cross. Please don't hear me debunking the cross. If the cross is not of most importance in your gospel, then you're missing something because... Paul said it must be of first importance. But there's more than just how to get out of hell. There's a God who's come in the flesh to be intimate with us. The gospel is come to me and eat me. Drink my blood. Live through me. Walk into the kingdom through me. I am the living water that comes out of heaven. These, all these I am statements were not said to the disciples except for two. They were said to the masses. This was his invitation. Come and eat me. Come and become so close to me that I become your shepherd. I become the door. I'm the light of the world. You walk in me. You breathe in me. You have to abide in me. All of these terms are saying, come and be totally intimate with me. God, come in the flesh. That's the invitation of the kingdom. So we need to work on that because otherwise we'll continue to take the gospel of how to get out of hell. That's not the whole gospel. The champions also need to digest and imbibe movement, what we call disciple-making movement. Now, there are other ways of leading movements, but I happen to think amongst Muslims this is probably the best. If you're interested in a textbook about it, it's probably this one, Miraculous Movements by Jerry Trousdale, though there are others that are coming out now. Um, but this one is, is really simple read. It's a good thing to read together so that it becomes a part of your DNA as a team. And then I, I plead with everyone who goes, once you get to the field and you've been there for a year or so, go and get the full DMM training. So um, we've got Alan and Lindsay Bach here. The, you, you guys are doing your second year in TOEG, right? So last time I was here, I met Alan and Lindsay, and I met uh, Laz, uh, another doctor. They've all gone through TOAG, so they've learned some of these principles in TOAG. But I'm pleading with them that when you get to the field, don't rely just on your pre-field training. Go and immerse yourself in it again so that you're thinking the book of Acts. Let's go and try and do what Acts did. Acts there was a, a, a caring for the poor. Paul does collect a huge sum of money. He takes it to the church in, in, in Jerusalem. But that's not his primary focus. His primary focus is the gospel in such a way that it ripples through the whole community. And so I say, 
whatever your training, once you get in the field, go get the full six-day DMM training as a team. And then don't go alone. There's been a lot of talented workers that have decided we can do this with just Jesus and me. Well, Jesus said he gave us spiritual gifts so that we can work together. And there is wisdom in going with an organization. In fact, for pre-formed teams, if you're a medical team and you're already formed before you go, I strongly suggest that you look at an organization like Frontiers because they have that built into their structure to help whole teams go together as teams. It's actually the only agency I know in the Muslim world that's doing that. But it's a great agency and there's a bunch of literature about Frontiers here if you'd like it. But whatever you do, go with others who have this same passion for movements who will help you process this difficulty of wanting to serve the physical needs, but really wanting to make sure that movements sweep through the people group. And then, if you have time, I'd strongly encourage you to do an internship like TOAG. Uh, Alan and Lindsay are going to be here afterwards. Why don't you guys come on over here afterwards? And so, if you have any questions about TOAG, come and ask the folks that are doing it. I'm up here as well. Um, we, we don't say that TOAG is for everybody, but I'm not sure there's many of us that should just spend 20, hour, 20 years training for medicine and spend two weeks in Canada school and think we're ready to go and launch movements. It's kind of a funny thing that's happened. We've spent so much time educating on the physical realm and so little preparing for the book of Acts. So... We think it's probably worthwhile to take the nine months. You do it while you're, uh, while you're working. You're not allowed to stop working during that time. It's after hours. Uh, about 15 hours of time that you normally would think of as normal Christianity. Four hours in the spiritual disciplines. <coughs> three hours in training. One night in the mentor's home. Just a couple hours of reading and responding to what you're reading so that you can Socratically discuss it together couple hours of focused outreach with Muslims every week. And then you spend four hours together as a Jesus community, half of it praying, half of it in what we would call church. We do this all in community. We call it sock distance. You have to be so close that you can run to each other's homes in your socks so that you really do life together with Muslims living around you. Um, I also want to remind you of this program if you go to the elements in your conference guide, I don't even know what that is, but uh, John McVeigh sent me this. So if you go to elements in your conference guide, you'll learn more. But they're, they're realizing that you need to be mentored during this process. I think it's a great pro- uh, idea. And so if you'd like to have somebody who's just a little further along on the journey who could help you think through all the options, they've got this set up now to do here through this conference. Let's uh, turn it over for questions. TOEG is an acronym, Training Ordinary Apprentices to Go. You're welcome. But it means just TOEG. What does Yahoo mean? What does Google mean? (laughs) TOEG came up. There's a history behind it, but yes. Champion as one of the roles that people play. Um, when you talk about forming a, a team, 
like what other kinds of roles? Did I miss some of the No, that's good. I, I didn't even touch on those. We think there's about eight key players on a team, but you won't always have all of them on the team that goes. Very often, it's better not to have all of them so that you have to find those players in the nationals that you're going to serve. But we talk about a stage one team leader. They're more visionary. They get things started. You may not even want that team leader to stay with you the whole time because they'll forget about you and move on to the next mountain. And a stage two team leader tends to be more pastoral as well as apostolic. And that, that's a really good gift. We also find that we really need friend makers on teams. It isn't a spiritual gift, though. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul recognized it one. He just didn't get it in one of his lists. But these friend makers are especially able to make Muslims feel at home and open up their lives. A host is another gift. Somebody that you all got to be hospitable, but some people thrive on having Muslims stop in all the time. And so you probably need someone like that on a team. And then we also need prophetic skill gifts. Uh, you can't go into enemy territory without hearing from the Father. You've got to have intelligence telling you what to do. I just sat with an incredible story over lunch where this brother told me how he heard the voice of God say, take the kingdom to the kingdom. And he struggled with this until, as it turned out, he ended up being sent through the top physician for several of our presidents to go to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and serve as the private physician for who is now the king of Abdul Aziz. What is his name? Samah? What is the king of... Anyway, it's the present king of Egypt. And this guy was right here a couple of years ago when he walked up on the stage like you're going to do later this evening and felt God say, Saudi Arabia, where did that come from? And then he felt God say, clearly take the kingdom to the kingdom. And he was just telling me how on the plane... He went into the bathroom and had a meltdown because what am I doing? I got my kids and my whole families. I'm going to Saudi Arabia to live in the palace. But that's what God told him to do. And we need to hear from God before we start making plans. So to have that prophetic gift on a team is, is really helpful. Now, again, you may not bring that person with you, but you better find that person on the ground then when you get there. And then, of course, teacher, uh, especially when you start discipling, and the gift of pastor or shepherd, those are needed. We also see the need for a facilitator um, because there's a lot of just work. There are people that love to serve teams, especially if you're in the medical profession. You want somebody that likes to run around and get all the government permissions you need and get your drivers, your tags for your car and housing permits and whatever else you need so that you can do the ministry. So if you can find one of these facilitators to come here, that's also a really good gift. You notice I haven't even invented, mentioned evangelist yet. That's very handy. But what we're finding is that the best evangelists are just plain salty people. If Colossians 4 says that we ought to be ready always. We're always just having the right word for the conversation. Don't go out evangelizing. Be a believer who loves Jesus, and just simply talk about it. I, I was my reading today for Toag is from the story where um, Jesus heals, 
And he does it in such a way that I thought, God, he's doing it right in Nazareth, his own hometown, where there's little faith, kind of like where I work all the time. But I thought, God, I, this is your model. I've got to do this. So my I will is, if I possibly can, before I get home, I'm going to stop and pray for a couple sick people that I'll see in the airport or on the plane. There's always somebody that needs some kind of physical touch. And I can't spell medicine, but I can pray for the doctor in heaven to bring healing. Because that's... Now, do you think that might woo somebody to the king? If you pray for them in Jesus' name and they feel the touch of his spirit, even if he doesn't choose to heal them right away. Much of our evangelism is simply living out loud. Have such a passion for Jesus that you just regularly talk about him. Any other questions? Yes. Well, there are all kinds of teams. Uh, There are some all-female teams. It's very interesting that the one... We do need single ladies on teams. Single men can minister to married men and single men. Married men can minister to married men and single men. Married women can minister to married women, but they can't very well minister to single women. And so, unless you have some single women, it's very difficult to reach a growing part of the Muslim community. It used to be when you were... Muhammad married Aisha when she was six, defrocked when she was nine. And so, we've still got that kind of thing going on in the Muslim world. But more and more, the Muslim women are getting educated and taking longer to marry. And it's really difficult for anybody but single women to... So you need single gals on teams. And a lot of the DMM studies, when you help people study the scriptures, it's actually women. Uh, I might, we'll see. I might just take them and show you one of the gals, one of my interns, what she did. Uh, women, women can get into places that men can't do. We've got a, a launch group in College Station right now. And two, I, I think they may be sophomores or juniors in college, but they're really young. And they don't know diddly squat about Islam or anything. But they were invited to the Shiite mosque and they joined in for a halakha discussion about the Quran. And after a while, the people decided they liked these two Christians. They know they're Christians. And the imam came to them just about four weeks ago, five weeks ago, and said, we know that you're Christians. We don't know the Bible. Would you please teach us or lead us in a discussion about Jesus from the Bible? And so their third discussion was last, last night. I haven't heard yet how that's going. But I think to myself, they would never do that with me. I'm too intense. But for these two young gals, it's like, would you come? We don't really care what you say, but you will help us to understand Jesus in a non-threatening way. I don't mean that they won't care, but they won't feel threatened by them. So, does that get close to your question or did I scoot it? Most discipleship is done by the head or the person of peace, the head of the household. It's all, this is another big strategy shift. When I was a pastor for years, we thought that you have to first get people to believe and then you can 
get them to behave like proper Christians and then they can belong to you. Jesus did the exact opposite. He says, come and belong to me. And then he worked on them behaving. And for some of them, it wasn't until his resurrection that they actually believed. They could not fathom that he would die. And once he died, they could not fathom that he would rise again. What did they believe? But in the process, he had had them to belong to him and be with him. And he began to change them until they began to love this Jesus. And then the belief came. And that's what's happening with many Muslims. So you'll often find it's people who are on the way who are discipling others on the way. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily us foreigners who are doing that. We're shadow pastoring behind the scenes with the person of peace. And that person of peace is leading those discussions. Let me just follow that up with when Jesus sent out today, I just read about Jesus sending out the twelve. He's sending them out as missionaries? Were they believers yet? They hadn't even figured out if he was the Messiah. And they were already sending him out. So, we have authority, we have the model of Jesus that we can send people who are in the process of moving towards Jesus. We can say, go and tell others. Disciple others into the kingdom. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that Jesus uses that term as though they knew what it was. So it's a little bit hard for me to be definitive about it. But in Luke 10, what we do find is that the person of peace will, will welcome you. And you'll see this with Muslims. You'll find some that just have no interest. The guy sitting next to me in the plane was not a person of peace. I tried to open the doors to friendship and spiritual conversations. He's just interested. He's not interested. Okay, I'm not going to bludgeon him with the gospel. But when you find a person of peace, they welcome you. And they also welcome you into their oikos. The word that's used in Luke 10 is oikos. Stay in his oikos. Now, an oikos doesn't mean just house. It refers to the household. Abraham probably had over a hundred people in his household. All the people that did life with him. Oikos, O-I-K-O-S, it's Greek. But it's the word that usually is translated house or household. So these persons of peace will not just say, I want to hear it, but you're welcome to talk to my larger community. I open the door for you to talk broader than just to me. And then in the end of Luke uh, 10, Jesus talks about they listen. So we're kind of looking for what we call woolly people. They welcome us, they open up their oikos, and they listen. So when we go into a Muslim community, we'll often... Go see as many, many homes as we possibly can and then always ask this question. Are they welcoming? Are they opening up their oikos? And are they listening? And we might find people that are very welcoming and listen, but they don't make it possible for us to tell anybody but themselves. So that's not who we hang our hat with. We're looking for those persons of peace that will also include the larger community they're part of. Good question. Any others? I had the experience of this happening in Uganda. This was a Muslim family. We went there for a conference. And uh, the guy that was uh, 
uh, sponsored the conference. He told us to go and pray for his family, just pray with him. And we went there and we found a lady of peace. Uh-huh. And she opened it up. And the whole family got saved, including a three-year-old baby. All of them got baptized in the Holy Ghost and were speaking in tongues. I mean, the whole family. And it was something that just didn't take a whole lot of time. It's like it was a preparation. It's like they were waiting. And uh, it's just like you said, she did not rest until we came to the Oak. Mm-hmm. What's that word? Ocas. Oikos. Oikos. Uh-huh. You know, it's got to be what you're going to give me, you're going to give my family. And it really happened, and it was just, it was amazing. Let me see if this will play here. Yes. One thing that you taught us was that the person of peace doesn't always become a believer. Yeah. think about it that way. I think that historically most do but like that sheikh I showed you in the, the the imam he was not a believer he just opened it says you can tell all my people so she was allowed to plant six churches yeah. without him becoming a follower of Jesus he says I'm too old to change feel bad but but he likes the change he sees in his people so. and they still say the ones in Uganda are still saved and they've uh, they planted seven churches that's wonderful I mean, it's just something like uh, you don't know that it's going to really happen. You know, it's just it's just like the gentleman said. He had the dream and he saw someone coming, mm-hmm. and they just were ready for it. And God just and it really happens. Yep, it really does. I've been on a mission field 45 years and I've seen it happen. You'd be surprised how often God brings dreams to those that we're working with because it's a co-laboring with Him. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. One day. So, um, so I've uh, done some training on DMMs before, mm-hmm. and it's a very decentralized um, kind of strategy. And um, so, to, to me, it sounds like bringing in teams and then bringing in healthcare and that kind of stuff. Um, beyond just being decentralized, it's also very lightweight, right? You have the sort of core, core DNA of groups that will rep- that will multiply. Um, so I'm wondering, um, why do you need a sort of heavyweight team in order to start that happening? And then why do you? Need, and then how would you incorporate a little more heavyweight uh, health kind of stuff um, in that kind of a lightweight strategy? And I know they might not necessarily be heavyweight, but yes, they, I, they might appear to be. Have any of you heard Carol Davis? She often she spoke here this morning. Uh, Carol said of the first five teams that were, that were recorded in David Garrison's original book on church planning movements. Before it was a book, it was a booklet. All five of those were teams of three, effectively, teams of three. Now, one of the reasons why that's true, that, that smaller teams, is because they're not so heavyweight. So they go out and they realize, you know what? We don't have a prophet in our group. We don't have intelligence hearing. We need to find somebody in the community that can help us with that. We don't have a teacher and so they find somebody and bring them into the team. So you're bringing up a good point. Sometimes we don't want to be so strong as a team that we have all that we need on our team. On the other hand, for most of us foreigners, if you're going into a, a very different area, you've got to bring some friends with you because it's very difficult to go alone at first. And the medical part... Um, <clears throat> 
I wish I had time to tell you the story of the Darfur. <clears throat> they started a major medical clinic, but um, Emmanuel would say to me, that wasn't what brought the gospel. The, 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 the clinic opened their, their ears to listen to us. The gospel opened their hearts. But they had to do that to be trusted by the community. And as they met so many of these needs in this simple clinic, it wasn't, he wasn't even a physician himself, but he relied heavily on bringing all kinds of skills in. And then he brought all the leading sheikhs together. And they all decided, the whole group of them decided to follow Jesus. And then the whole community did. It's just an amazing thing in Sudan. Well, unless there's another pressing question, uh, I'm up here, uh, Alan is up here, Lindsay is, um, and Jeff's up here about frontiers. If you want to know more about frontiers, come on up. You're dismissed. Thank you.